Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is your co-host, Derek Weston. Today, I'm joined by Karen Bigelow and Avery Davis-Lamb, co-executive directors of Creation Justice Ministries. Karen has served as the policy advisor and project manager, as well as policy analyst and research analyst at Bread for the World, focusing on the intersections of climate change, food security, and racial equity. She is a steering committee member of the American Baptist Church's Creation Justice Network and on the leadership committee of the Pan-African Young Adult Network. She earned her Master in Divinity from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, where she sat on the board of directors, and her undergraduate degree in social relations and policy from Michigan State University. She's currently pursuing a Master of Science in Global Food Security and Nutrition focusing her studies and research on sustainability. She holds a certificate in beekeeping and is a former Green Faith Junior Fellow. Avery is an activist, ecologist, and public theologian working at the intersection of Christianity and environmental justice. Avery has a background in both ecological research and faith-based environmental organizing, studying ecology in various ecosystems and organizing faith communities across the country in support of action on environmental justice. Previously, he's worked for Sojourners and Interfaith Power and Light. He serves on the board for the Center for Spirituality and Nature and is a fellow with the Regenerate program at Wake Forest Divinity School and the Foundations of Christian Leadership program at Duke Divinity School. Currently, Avery is at Duke University pursuing a Master of Environmental Management and Ecosystem Science and Conservation and a Master of Theological Studies with certificates in Faith, Food, and Environmental Justice and Community-Based Environmental Management. His research focuses on the role of religious communities in building climate resilience and adaptation with emphasis on the virtue of climate hospitality. This was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy learning more about what Creation Justice Ministries does. You can find ways to connect with them in the show notes. And as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. Okay, let's listen to Avery and Karen. Okay, we are here today with Avery Davis-Lamb and with Karen Bigelow. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Derek. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, so we we start all of our um, all of our interviews with this question of what is your geography? What are the places, food, music, culture that have shaped you into the person that you are? And you can you can take that in any direction that you want. Um, so whoever wants to go first, what is uh, what is your geography? So I am in I'm a DC girl. Um, I'm born and raised in Washington DC. Um, the my family, um, my grandparents came to DC from North Carolina. And so um, very much shaped by the city that I grew up in and still um, live in. And when it comes to like go-go music and just, um, you know, I don't know, mumbo sauce, <laughs> carry outs, or, uh, you know, being from the South, my family, um, soul food. And so those are the things that really have influenced me is, uh, um, yeah, just the Black experience, I guess, overall has been able to shape me um, when it comes to food um, as a Christian um, going to seminary, it was really there where I was able to discern more about my sense of call towards um, like food justice issues. And so um, that very much shaped me um, being in Pittsburgh for a few years and just kind of seeing where the Holy Spirit was leading me. And so um, 
I now look at that through like a climate lens, but, um, but yeah, so that's my experiences, my education, just my family has really shaped where I, where I've been. My grandmother was always known to be like the cook in the family. And now my mom is, and I don't know if I'm the heir to that yet. I'm still learning to cook, but, um, it is something where, you know, food and this family has definitely shaped, um, how I, how I view things, even from a policy perspective. Awesome. Avery, how about you? Yeah. So I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. And so I, you know, even though I've lived several places since growing up in Kansas, that's really the geography, um, that's formed me, you know, the, the close connection with, the land, even though we lived in a city, yeah. a, a small city, a big city by Kansas standards, a small city by <laughs> any other standards, you know, um, you 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 know you barely had to get out of the city before you come face to face with farmland um, and constantly in touch with people who are just intimately connected with the land and really a history of progressivism in in contact with the land too. You know, mm. thinking about. Um, kind of the the progressive populist movements of the early 20th century and the farmers involved in labor organizing and of course John Brown being from Kansas you know it was even though you know when you think of Kansas now there's there's sort of a conservative politics associated with I think there's a real deep connection with the land that's actually there that you get um having grown that, that I get having grown up there um uh, you know, it, it, as far as food goes, I think um, I grew up in a family that um, cared a lot about kind of how our habits aligned with our values. And so my mom was vegetarian for a lot of my childhood. Um, I didn't like it as much then, but I think I attribute a lot of that to me being <laughs> vegetarian now, you know, and, and eating eating in a way that I, I want to be um aligned with everything else that I'm doing, um, in the world. Um, now I live in Durham, North Carolina, and it's a really interesting place to, to, to kind of see the geography. I've only been here for two years, a little over two years. Um, but the history of this area is that it was the site of the exploitation of land and the exploitation of people on the land. Mm. And those scars are still visible. And I think part of my ecological education here at Duke has been to learn to read those scars in the land mm. and to listen to the land as it tells the history of exploitation of the people. Mm. And at the same time, to see the possibility of restoration so to see secondary growth forests grow up out of what was a plantation um, and, and animals and plants re returning to, you know, the farms where slaves were farming tobacco. So those are just a few of the threads that are coming up for me now in Durham. Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. For for both of you, when when did the connection between uh your faith and 
climate change and and food justice and and ecological justice when did that connection start to form was that was that from a young age or was that something that as your theological education developed that became more present i can hop in here first on this one um so i i have what i've come to think of as an ecological conversion moment and this is um Stealing the language from Pope Francis here. Um, But when I was a sophomore in college, I came back home to Kansas and went to a very large evangelical conference in Kansas City. Um, And it was at this conference that sort of the values that I just talked about, the values of, you know, caring for the land and caring, you know, for each other through our actions came face to face with my religious upbringing, which was Southern Baptist. We didn't talk about creation. Um, And it, you know, it just hit me in the moment that I'd never heard messages about caring for the world around us, even though it was so, you know, both innately and like nurtured in me to do so. And so I walked away from that from that conference, just committed to finding the people who are talking and writing about it. Cause I knew they were out there. I just knew they had to be out there. Cause I wasn't right. the first one to realize this. <laughs> so, you know, went away from that. And, you know, I think a, a lot of the figures who introduced me to this are, are similar for a lot of folks, you know, finding Wendell Berry and, um, you know, folks at Duke like Ellen Davis and Norman Wurzba, um, and just being captivated and just, you know, immediately being drawn in and, and feeling like I am, um, that everything I felt and heard, you know, that everything I felt was being, was being heard and was being um, spoken to by these writers. Karen, how about for you? I would say it took me um, years <laughs> to go on this journey. Um, as I was saying in seminary, I went through this process of, trying to discern where was the Holy Spirit leading me. I felt called towards seminary, knew very much so that I was not being called to parish leadership. And so then the question became, well, God, what is the next path? And I actually found myself starting to have dreams where I had to start feeding people. And so Mm. I started going down that process and it just led me to realize like, to start looking up stuff. And I came across the field of food security. Um, And then I ended up working for an organization that did faith in food security. And I ended up reading a UN report um, just for interest. And it said that although the world is working towards ending hunger by 2030, climate change could end up causing over 100 million people to go back into extreme poverty, which would naturally lead to um, food insecurity. And so I remember just thinking, like, why in the world are we advocating for world hunger to end by 2030, but yet we're not having just as much energy towards climate change? And so that one introduction in the report was the thing that kind of set me on the path to really say that we can't we can't end hunger without addressing climate change. They go hand in hand. And then I started to read how not only can we not end climate change, but then our food is making it worse for the planet, like our our production um, systems. And so because of that, it just set me on a journey. And so that's really how I entered that space um, is through concern for um, food security and then being concerned about if it's even feasible because of how we're treating the planet. Um, 
when it comes to that. And I'm a new beekeeper. And so now I'm even more interested in like biodiversity and things. So it's been, it's a journey. I can I guess I've had multiple moments of epiphanies um, that have kind of led me to this path. Yeah. We don't often think holistically enough about when we talk about hunger and thinking about climate and the ways that food and and ecology are so interwoven um that that is i think a, a place of short-sightedness where a lot of our policymakers are are just not seeing how those two things go together i want to talk about uh creation justice ministries because um you two are co-executive directors, uh, which is a pretty cool model. Um, so first off, tell me a little bit about what is what is Creation Justice Ministry? Yeah, I, I can start. So um, the mission of Creation Justice Ministries is to educate, equip, and empower Christians of all stripes um, to do three things, and that's to protect, to restore, and to rightly share God's creation. Um, and th- those three things have come to be, you know, really personally important to me in, in thinking about not only the role of creation justice ministries, but kind of our role here on earth, I guess, um, you know, and, and I think thinking about it theologically, I've kind of come to see the three E's that this invites us into. So protecting being ecology, um, you know, protecting the, you know, the beautiful ecology that God has created um, that both reveals something of who God is and reveals something to us of who we are. Um, restoring being, to, to use a very big theological word, uh, eschatological. So, you know, looking towards um, the kingdom of heaven and, you know, really hearing the words of Jesus here where, the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is here on earth, your kingdom come. The act of restoring God's creation is an eschatological act. And that as we restore this, we are building the kingdom of heaven on earth. And especially in the face of climate change, which is hell on earth, you know, it is the, the fires and the heat waves of, you know, our, our own sin and destruction you know, in the face of that, we can restore and then rightly share um, is economy. So, you know, thinking about economy in a theological sense coming from the Greek word oikos, which is household. So, you know, rightly sharing between each other because we're all part of the household of God. Rightly sharing among humans, of course, writing the the wrong systems of exploitation and greed because we live in a world of abundance and there's enough to go around. And the problem that we face is not one of scarcity. The problem that we face is one of not rightly sharing um, the gifts that we have from God. So that's, that's the framework that I, I see creation justice ministries operating within. I would just add to that. Um, when it comes to that with protecting, restoring, and rightfully sharing, not only do we mean that from the earth, but also our relationship as humans to the earth. And so being able to, for example, protecting, we're not just looking to protect the the creatures and the rest of the ecology that is so important to preserve, but also those cultures that are 
centered around nature? Um, how do we help to protect those cultures that are able to, um, you know, just be able to exist and to be able to preserve those practices that they've had for such a long time that are unfortunately being disrupted because of um, just the the collapse of so much biodiversity. Um, and so that's the only thing that I would add to what Avery said is that part of that protecting, restoring, and rightfully sharing is not only with um, restoring nature, but also restoring our relationships as humans and how we relate to the earth um, and how we allow others to relate to the earth as well. I, I love that, Karen. Um, and just to get in here, that, that reminds me of of two, two, a series of quotes that I found to be compelling for this work. One is, you know, Gary Snyder, um, 40 or 50 years ago saying, in culture is the preservation of wilderness. But then Wendell Berry coming maybe 20 years later and saying, in agriculture is the preservation of culture. And so, you know, just getting it back to food here, of course, that, um, the work of agriculture, the work of um, addressing hunger is not a deviation from the work of creation justice, like Karen was saying. In fact, the preservation of creation justice is found within, you know, the work of agriculture and addressing hunger. That's such a helpful way of framing the, the connection of of um, of food production and the ways that our, our ecology um, are impacted by the ways that we feed ourselves and the ways that we feed each other. Um, so what does this look like programmatically on a ground level? What are you, what are you doing to resource congregations? What are you doing to help ind uh, individuals within faith communities to actually live into some of these, these ideals that you're talking about? Um, so a big part of what we're doing right now is that, of course, we send out messages to give people the opportunity on how to advocate for these issues um, that we care so deeply about. Um, and so a big part of it is that we also do education around these issues. We partner with some great organizations that do um, theological education so that we can really um, use scripture and just our faith as a catalyst for the advocacy that we hope people will do. Um, Avery and I are very much still new in the role. Um, we're about three months in as co-directors. And so there's definitely um, ways that we want to go deeper into the work, especially when it comes to um, congregational care and being able to really equip churches to not only um, do advocacy for climate issues and other um, conservation issues, but also to then equip them to just give pastoral care in some sense to those congregations, because so much of the time um, we treat churches as tools for advocacy, but churches are also on the front lines of climate issues and conservation issues. And so a big part of what we want to do is to support churches as they're even going through the issue of resilience and trying to find how to um, you know, just deal with the climate shocks that happen and being able to care for their own congregants who are then also you know, on the front lines. Yeah, yeah. So well said, Karen. And just uh, kind of on a practical level, how we're organized, you know, we um, work on multiple different issues um, under the umbrella of creation justice, like Karen was saying, you know, creation justice for us is about God's people and God's planet. 
So of course we're focused on climate issues. That's extremely important, but we're also focused on a number of other issues. We, you know, engage with public lands and in particular asking questions about who historically has been left out of public lands conservation. Um, we're working on a project in California right now that's asking the question, you know, how can we undo the doctrine of discovery? How can we dismantle the doctrine of discovery? And how can kind of lands conservation be the soil out of which we engage, you know, we being Christian faith communities engage um, and support indigenous conservation efforts? Um, so public lands, you know, we, we engage in ocean conservation work as well, recognizing that, you know, really in many ways, the ocean is the biggest frontline um, to the climate crisis, um, but it's unseen, you know, we don't see it. And yet it's, it's so much of God's creation is inside the ocean. So, you know, th these ways of inviting people of faith into um, kind of, kind of um, ways of creation justice that is not just climate change or that is seeing climate change in a new way. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed on your website is that, uh, and this kind of uh, piggybacks a little bit off of your, your talking about um, the doctrine of discovery. Uh, I noticed that there are racial justice resources on, and that, that was one of the things that uh, struck me. Um, why is racial justice a, such an important piece to this conversation? Um, and how, how are you seeing uh, these intersections of racial justice and, and um, ecological justice play out and, and intersect? Um, so I think part of the challenge that we have when it comes to racial justice and why we have to center it in the conversation around climate and conservation um, issues is because often these are populations that are most impacted by um, these issues, and yet they're often the populations that also cause the issues the least. Um, but there's not enough um, centering and putting the face of these communities at what it means to be impacted by climate change, what it means to be impacted by not having access to public lands, access to oceans. Um, what does that mean when the ocean, you know, like there's not enough um, fish in the ocean in a certain region, like there's cultures that are, you know, that are based on that region. There's diets that are dependent on the, you know, access to certain types of fish. And so there is so many cultural things um, that need to be recognized that not only do we lose biodiversity, but we also lose cultures um when it comes to that people get displaced there's so many things and so but often that's not a part of the conversation and that's the biggest challenge and so for us we want to make sure that as an organization that we are actually naming these issues um, and centering those conversations so that they don't get seen um unseen there's also the fear of um if we do things in order to protect the earth, how do we make sure that it doesn't cause more harm to these communities as well, especially when it comes to race? How do we make sure that if we, you know, want to try to preserve, you know, let's say a specific type of salmon in a certain region of California, how do we make sure that we don't punish um, indigenous communities for 
fishing. Um, like how do we treat that versus a commercial fisher different? And so how do we make sure that these things are not causing more harm and trauma to different populations? Um, Avery mentioned before how we have work that we do around public lands and asking the question of who has access to it and who doesn't. How do we make sure that when we're advocating for public lands that Black people are not going to get called the cops on them because they're just being in a public space doing nothing? Or how do we make sure that there's accessibility so that um, there's proper translations for people when they're in public lands? How do we make sure that it's accessible for everyone? And if we don't center that conversation, then it often means that those issues are not going to be um, acknowledged or even considered when it comes to policy and legislation. Um, but Avery, I, I'm happy to hear what else you have to add to that, because I'm sure I've been rambling a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was great, Karen. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think what I'll add is kind of thinking about this question in a theological register. And, you know, and so we just this morning, we published a, a piece by Nicole Taylor Morris, who's a womanist theologian, asking the question of what is womanist creation justice? Mm. And I think one thing that womanist writers have taught us and, you know, you know James Cohn and other Black liberation theologians have talked about this is that it is the same logic of oppression that connects the oppression of black people specifically in the United States, but you know, people of color more broadly and the oppression of the land mm. or the oppression of the earth. And so if we are, if we expect to unravel the oppression of the land, we can't do that without simultaneously unraveling the oppression of people, specifically the oppression of black people. Yeah. And so that's why this work of racial justice is so central because we can't just have one, you know, we, we can't just do one or the other that we need to be doing both. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's, it's, it's so often um, a place of conflict when you start to have, have these conversations is that, Oh, you're, you're now you're dragging race into this. Well, no race, race is a part of this conversation. Race is, race is integral to this conversation. And we have to think about um, what are, I love how you said that, that you're, you're thinking through how your solutions are not actually going to hurt the people that they're, they're meant to help or the people who might be most vulnerable to the effects of climate change that are, 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 all around us. So you both have you both mentioned that you're 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 fairly new to this uh, to this work. I, I knew you were new. I didn't realize it was only three months. What have been the biggest challenges so far in 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 stepping into leadership in in this uh, in this ministry? You know, I, I think both the biggest challenge and the biz- biggest excitement is rethinking what Christian leadership looks like under a co-director model. Mm. And so, you know, this is, you know, deviating from the food and faith topic to talk about uh, organizational development and leadership a little bit. Go for it. I think it's extremely relevant to your your listenership, I would guess. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But, you know, the the charge from our board was to, you know, they want us to rethink what Christian leadership looks like, Mm -hmm. especially for an organization that is committed to justice and that is committed to, you know, doing things like dismantling the doctrine of discovery. Well, how can we expect to do that 
if we are operating in an organizational model that is, you know, paternalistic and hierarchical. So um, it's a challenge to co-direct. It requires a lot of vulnerability. It requires a lot of work. We're three months in and it's going really well. Um, but it, it is a lot of work because it can be seen as a distraction from the things that matter, right? Like the, the benefit, I guess, of having a single director is that you don't have to spend time, you know, building a trusting relationship with your co-leader. You know, you can make unilateral decisions. It's much more efficient. Um, but, you know, we don't have to look very far, especially in the church, to see how that leads to abuse. Right. Um, and so, you know, in, we've, we've really paid attention to investing in our relationship firsthand, seeing the relationship between us and with our staff as an integral part of the work and really inviting the community around us. So we have, we have a leadership coach who is going through this with us, inviting the community around us um, to be part of our leadership development because, you know, there's two of us, but even the two of us, we don't know it all together and we need to be including our broader community in all of this. Yeah, I, I don't have much more to add. I think that has been, as Avery said, the biggest, um, challenge was just we're still creating it three months in we're still figuring out what the model will look like um i would say the biggest opportunity though is that as avery said we're two people and so it does mean that we slow down um he and i have similar visions for the organizations but they're not for the organization but they're not the same vision and so that means that we get to really have conversations where I think it leads to a better model that we're creating um, instead of just one of us doing it. And it means that, as Avery said, we are trying to get a shared co-created vision with staff as well as with our board. And so it does mean that, um, you know, a better vision will come out, but it does mean that it's a slower vision um, to come together. And so, but it's also the beauty in that, as Avery said, we're trying to have a a true Christian um, vision for leadership. And one of the ways I was reading something recently, one of the ways that white supremacy shows up in the workplace is through rushing things all the time. All things always have to be done as opposed to slowing down and actually asking the right questions and having the right conversations. And I think that's part of what helps us is that by having a co-director model, it forces us to slow down um, and to have those conversations and to make sure that our priorities are straight. Um, and being able to just really navigate, is this where we're going? Um, in some respects, it can be hard to not move as fast, but it also means that, again, we just end up having a better process um, and a better product once those things do get done and those conversations have been had and vetted and, you know, everything by different people. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just to kind of connect that, Karen, with what we were talking about earlier with kind of false solutions, to the climate crisis, right? That I think what creation justice ministries brings to the movement, you know, when we're thinking about the environmental movement broadly is a vision that goes beyond the next 10 years. So we, we know that the next 10 years are crucial for taking action on climate change. You know, we, read the science we trust the science that says that what we do now is going to have implications you know beyond and yet we will persist beyond the next 10 years in some way and we 
you know, rushing to get false solutions that are going to entrench inequalities is not that just like Ken was saying that that is a white supremacist approach to conservation and and to environmental justice. Um, so just as we're working on that internally, kind of not rushing, I, you know, this is something that I struggle with for sure is slowing down mm. by doing that internally. I think we can also reflect that externally, especially with our secular partners and invite them to ask, let's have a vision for what the world is going to look like after 10 years and, you know, start building, yes, fighting like hell for everything that we can save, but also recognizing the catastrophe is here. We need to start building communities of resilience that are going to be able to help each other, love each other, um, help the world and love the world for the next 50, 100, 500 years. I, I, I really love that because I, I think if we want to see a different world, we have to have different models. We have to have different models of leadership. We have to have different models of organization. We have to have different models of what it means to make decisions. And, and it can't always be top down. It can't always be what's most efficient. And, and in fact, you know, like, I mean, I think for a lot of our listeners who are, who are gardeners and, and understanding like, that's not how gardening works. That's not the, you know, and, and to think that's not how ecological systems work. Um, you know, there, there are cycles, there is, there is mutuality, there are, there is partnership. Um, and so to have an organization, particularly one that is so justice oriented, have that modeled to the world that this is what our leadership looks like. I think, I think that's a really powerful statement just in having you two there in, in the places of leadership where you are. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, Derek. And, and you're, you're so right. I mean, we look around, it's like, what do we learn from ecology? Well, we obviously there's a ton of diversity. There's also a heck of a lot of redundancy. <laughs> like <laughs> nature is not, uh, I mean, it's efficient in some senses, but like it is not efficient in the industrial sense. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of redundancy going on. Yeah. So you've also in the, in the three months that you've, you've been at this work, you've also been doing this in the middle of a pandemic. How is the pandemic of affecting how you get things off the ground, how you design the programs that you want to do, how you get information to people or how you get people mobilized to do the work that you're you're equipping them to do? I think part of it has just been the challenge of, I think, being the introvert that I, that I am, um, at some point in the pandemic, I'm like, oh, this is great being inside. Like, I don't have to, <laughs> like my, I've been training for this my whole life as an introvert, but Same. I do say I, as time has gone on, it has been something where it's like, I miss seeing people more. Um, I, the, there's just a certain community aspect that I think we've done the best we can under the circumstances to be able to stay in community with people. But it is hard not being able to actually see people, especially when we're talking about God's creation and how do we help people to have a heart for advocacy and changing God cre God's creation when we can't gather with people um, in God's creation. And so I think some of the most transformative moments I've had is not because someone just told me something. Sometimes it is, but it's also been trying, you know, it's one thing to read about poverty. It's another thing to travel to one of the most impoverished countries and see it up close. And so even with that, um, 
it is something where it's like how, you know, how nice would it be to be able to gather with people and to talk about the need to um, protect public lands and be able to have people in the midst of a public land and actually see what's at stake if we don't preserve it. And so in that respect, I do think that's the part that we're missing. Um, we've been able to do the best we can. Um, I'll let every, Avery talk about our day of action that we had. So we've been able to pivot, but it is something where um, not in a rush because we want to make sure it's safe, but I do look forward to when we can actually be in person and be able to really um, communally enjoy God's creation um, and knowing that it's safe to do so thinking about another pitfall, of course, kind of rushing things, being a pitfall, white, white supremacy, but I think disembodiment also being a pitfall and how like the work is just so disembodied for everyone right now. And I think especially the work of creation justice is finding ways to re-embody the work that we're doing, even though we're connecting via Zoom screens, you know, how am I embodied in my place here in Durham, even as I'm connecting with Karen in DC and Derek in Baltimore? Um, that's been an ongoing challenge. You know, something that I that I have not resolved. And you know, if any of your listeners have the solution to that, please let me know. <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, but yeah, so Karen Karen mentioned this this day of action we did, which I think is an example of a way that we've been able to cultivate community in an online space. And so uh, in late August, um, you know, a month ago, and we were still talking about infrastructure, um, we uh, we hosted a day of action for people of faith from across the countries to um, learn about um, advocacy for, you know, good climate resilient infrastructure and to, you know, put that in action, call their members of Congress so um, we hosted a, a call and event basically where we had over hundred people log on to a Zoom room. We did a little singing at the beginning, which was really fun. Um, we had some, some folks offer prayers, interfaith prayers. Um, we did a training on um, how to advocate for climate resilient infrastructure. And then as a group, we had everyone put themselves on mute and make the phone call to their members of Congress with their camera on. And we could look around and you could see everyone making their phone calls. You could see the ones that were going well. You could see the ones that they were a little angry. Their brow was a little far <laughs> over. You know, who they were talking to. I have some guesses about who they might be talking to. But, uh, um, you know, and then uh, as people wanted, you know, we invited them, you know, get off mute, share with us how it went. How were your calls? Um do you need help getting connected with someone like there, you know, there are a lot of technical issues, of course, people weren't able to get connected, but it just, it, it, it felt so special to have a space like this where, you know, it's, we're not just sort of chatting with each other, that as a community, we're engaging in the holy sacred act of advocacy, the holy sacred act of, of asking our leaders to show moral leadership. Um, and it, it reminded me that, you know, even though, we are disembodied in a sense that we can still be in relationship with each other, um, that we can still be engaging and learning from each other. And, you know, my hope is that we can do that more. Um, you know, this, this seems to be, you know, a kind, kind of normal. And I think as a national organization, 
we'll need to think of ways to engage people in a virtual space. And so that, that gave me heart and, and gave me confidence that there are ways that we can build community in this online area. Yeah. What a great event that must have been. I, I, I love the idea of, I mean, I was trying to imagine the, the, the screen <laughs> of all of these people making phone calls and, and the various reactions that they, they must be getting. I think that's a that's a really um, you know one of the one of the things that we've all had to um, I think in some ways really redefine is what is community and and I think we've recognized the need for it more and we've had to be really creative and resilient with the ways that we find it and the ways that we live into it and I think that's a that's a great way of. Um, what you're showing is a great way of, of doing that. Before we get to our last question, I want to ask one of the challenges of, of the eco- ecological conversation in faith communities is that there's a lot of, I, I, there's a prevalence of, I'll say, bad theology um, that, that really says that this created world isn't, you know, isn't our focus, you know, it's about our hearts, it's about our spirits, it's about, it's about all of these sorts of things that are um, not, you know, and, and, and even sometimes scripture is used to talk about, you know, there's a difference between the flesh and the spirit, and there's a higher value on the spirit. How do you, how do we get back to a place of, of seeing the inherent value of the created world, because I think that that question in and of itself is is what I think keeps faith communities from being more engaged in in this work is that there's it, it feels like it's it's a secondary or even tertiary conversation for the church. And yet, as as my theology is evolving, it feels pretty central um how do we how do we push back against sort of that that theology that tells us that this physical world isn't isn't what's most important this is a huge question for us i mean this this is the question for us at creation justice ministries um and this is why education and rethinking theology is so crucial to to our shared vision for the organization and it's our approach to this is to dig in to the scriptures because what we see in the scriptures throughout kind of the, the trajectory of the Bible is a God who is coming into ever closer intimacy with God's creation. Mm. And it's not just in Genesis 2, of course. We all love Genesis 2. God creating Adam from the dust of the ground. That's such a beautiful, intimate act. But it's not just there. It's the incarnation of the Christ into human flesh. You know, God becoming material, becoming worldly, and living in a way that brings dignity and beauty to the downtrodden. Um, to the people and and to the earth. And then, you know, in Revelation, this this eschatological vision of God uh, of the end times is not kind of the ascension of everything up to heaven, but in Revelation 21, what do we read? See the home of God 
is among mortals. That the trajectory here is not the, the rejection of the material world in exchange for something that is external and greater, but it is God coming ever closer to us and to God's creation so that it might be redeemed and it might be transformed into the kingdom of heaven on earth. I agree. I think um, a big part of it is to help people to understand that maybe some scriptures haven't been interpreted in a full way um, and how we've heard about it and preached about it because you don't hear people talk about um, nature. And I think part of it is that for a lot of churches, we have failed to help people realize our interconnectedness with the rest of creation. And so, and also not helping people to understand that we can't live out a call of whatever you do to the least of these you've done to me, um, a call of a sense of caring for people and not caring about nature, which nature, you know, part of nature's role is to take care of us. And so if we don't take care of nature, we can't take care of each other. And so I think part of it is helping people to understand that so many of those scriptures that we've heard over the years is not, um, separated from nature. And I think there's a reason why so much of the analogies and scriptures talked in a way from an agriculture standpoint, it's talked about from a nature standpoint, because it is that because nature is not separate from our destiny as humans. And so, and the problem is, is that I think for too long, people have been taught as if it is, as if um, nature's only responsibility is to take care of us, as opposed to it being a reciprocal relationship where if we take care of nature, nature will take care of us. And the challenge is, is that right now we're not taking care of nature. Nature as of right now is still doing its job and taking care of us, but we, that is that threat. And I think part of it is helping people to understand that theologically, um, there is a rich Christian theology, especially in older traditions like the Orthodox Church, that really show us um, the beauty of nature and a command to care for it um, in a way that I just, I don't think we hear enough in our congregations. And so I think part of it is a reteaching of the scriptures to help people understand that this is not a new mission, but something that when we call on people to act for creation, that's not new. It's returning back to what we were originally commanded to do. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I love, cause I, I follow, um, I follow your social media is that you have put a lot of scripture out there and really challenging people to think about scripture through this lens. Um, and, and you've put a lot of, you've, you've, um, uh, through your giveaways and things like that, you put a lot of books out there. So you're you're helping people to to reeducate themselves and 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 reorient themselves to this way of thinking, which I think is an incredibly important resource. Um, so we end all of our interviews with this question: um, What is it that gives you hope? Um, and not sort of a uh, a light, flimsy hope, but a res- that not a hope that ignores the challenges in the world, but a hope that is resilient. Um, that that helps you face the challenges that are in the world. Yeah, I, I can start. And thanks for your framing of hope, Derek, because definition of hope is so important <laughs> to me. Uh, getting back to theology is like the theological definition of hope is so much more beautiful than 
um, kind of a, a colloquial definition of hope that collapses it into optimism. Um, because let me tell you, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful because I see communities who have been devastated by various forms of exploitation by, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now about St. Paul AME Zion Church in Aurora, North Carolina. The ride on the water around the corner from them is an extractive phosphate mine. Mm. Up the Pamlico River is a an EPA Superfund site that is releasing hazardous waste still into the Pamlico Sound. Their church has been flooded three times from hurricanes in the last 20 years. Mm. And yet they continue to build community. They continue to see their role not as kind of escaping the realities of climate change, but building resilience, adapting in the face of them, and trusting in God, really, that a better world is possible. Mm. They're acting in their community. They're engaging in advocacy. They're working to, you know, better their place. And they're trusting that our efforts will be redeemed. Um, and so for me, that, that's, that's what hope is. It's, you know, a recognition of the reality of the crisis that we're in. And a belief that maybe, just maybe... Our, our best works, the work of our hands might be redeemed by God. That's beautiful. Yeah. I don't know how to top that. Or not to top <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to top it. <laughs> um, so I think for me, what gives me hope is um, this past year and a half has been devastating, um, especially when it comes to COVID-19. But in the midst of it, I think a lesson learned is that if we want to change, we can. Um, and so globally, we were able to pivot from working, you know, most people going in every day um, or, you know, five days a week or whatever the cultural, you know, standard is for work. But we were able to pivot to online. We were able to pivot to, you know, using clouds. So many church, I, I had a friend who said that her church was still using fax all the time um, for what they did. And then they had to go online. And so her being the younger person at the church, like she had to kind of help with that. But churches that were very adverse to doing, using technology. And so, for me, I think the hope is, is that if we, if we can get people on the same page, I think it is possible to do something is, I don't think it's a matter of, can we do it, but will we, and my hope is that we can do it. And I'm, I'm afraid that we won't have the will to do it until it's really, you know, in our faces, but even more than it is now. But I do think that this past year and a half has showed us that if we want to change, we can. And so the, at that point, I, I have hoped that at some point we will collectively want to make those changes. Um, I also see hope in that there's so many people, um, especially younger generations that are 
trying to get connected to the land. And so because of that, there's people who are becoming more conscious of how do we honor indigenous culture? How do we honor the land? Um, but then also people who are trying to get into farming. Um, I think a big part of what has messed us up as a culture is that we became so far removed from the land. And so to see more people wanting to go to the land again, I think really will help us to shift culture, um, especially for those, because many of those who I am seeing that want to go to the land, they're doing sustainable farming. They're doing the things that are prioritizing um, where we need to go in the earth and our practices and changing the systems for which we do. And so that's where it is. I think for me, I'm constantly in the mind frame of, I can't lose hope. Cause if I do like, that's just not beneficial to my mental health, but also just the work. And so for me, you know, it, it is those smaller things that I have to find hope in and just trusting that, um, you know, we'll get it together eventually, but yeah, if we want to change, we can. Yeah. Yeah. I think we we've learned that we can be a lot more resilient, a lot more adaptable if we have the will to do it and the collective will to do it. Thank you both for your time. And, and I, I'm incredibly grateful for all that you've shared. And I'm incredibly grateful that you're out doing the ministry that you're doing. Can you please just tell us all the ways that people can connect with Creation Justice Ministries and the ways they can connect with you? Um, just go ahead and plug away everything. Great, great. I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Creation Justice. You can find us online. Our website is creationjustice.org. Those are the best ways to stay connected with us. On the website, you can sign up for a newsletter. It's great. Get more of these theological resources we're talking about. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Avery Davis Lamb. And I don't remember Karen's handle, so I'll hand it over to her. <laughs> yes, you can find me, um, Karen Bigelow. Karen is spelled K-R-Y-N. So um, that's how you find me. That why is very important. So, um, but yeah, that's how you can follow me. Um, as Avery said, you can sign up um, to get our emails. We're happy to share theological um, resources with people as well as um, continuing to actually point people in a direction that they can go when it comes to advocacy um, for God creation excellent and we will put all of those links and everything into the show notes so that people have uh ways to connect with you and find you karen avery thank you so much for your time thank you for the great work that you're doing and um and after you've you know kind of gotten a little bit more settled in, in creation justice ministries like come back and tell us more ways that we can uh we can get involved and 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 work alongside you in the work that you're doing let's do it i love it thanks so much derek it's been a blessing thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.